Hello there, and thank you for coming back here to listen to episode three of Reaching Out. This conversation is with my old friend, Dennis Stefan. Dennis is a chief technology officer at Iva Technologies, and their product is an artificial intelligence who composes music. From credits, you will be aware that Iva composed and orchestrated the very tune you're hearing right now. In this episode, we speak about his journey of being an entrepreneur and how he co-founded Iva. But also, Dennis started managing teams of technical developers pretty much straight out of university. So it is very interesting to hear his take on management and interview processes. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dennis. Three, two, one. And we're live. How's it going, Dennis? Pretty good, yeah. Uh, luckily for me, um, lifestyle hasn't changed too much since all the crazy stuff going on in the world. Um, so spirits are high. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so how strict is the quarantine in Luxembourg then? Um, I think it's similar to other countries in Europe. So Germany, I maybe not as strict as the UK by now, although I, from what I know, you guys took a, while, uh, took a bit longer to respond. Basically, uh, you're allowed to go to work if it's a sort of, you know, if you cannot avoid working from home, uh, you're allowed to go to supermarkets, pharmacies, and even for, you know, jogs, exercise, basically. Uh, but you're obviously not allowed to like hang out and restaurants are closed and so on. How, how are you working out during these times? I remember you did some <laughs> MMA when uh, uh, back at uni. Are you still keeping up with yeah. that? Well, um, I tried to keep up early on when I moved here to Luxembourg. There was a gym that uh, had some classes. Um, they closed down like just out of nowhere uh, for like a long time. So I missed out on that. And generally speaking, my uh, routine is a bit, so I, I stay in the office uh, relatively late. So most classes are uh, a bit earlier. So maybe like 6 p.m., 5 p.m., something like that. So I haven't been able to sort of keep up with some kind of classes. But I was going to, you know, the gym and doing the regular stuff before the lockdown. Now I'm kind of confined to um, cycling and just doing stuff at home. And I'm trying to get into a better habit of that. Do you have a, a routine or are you just doing it ad hoc? Uh, like, have uh, you, did you have a routine before this? Because like you're, you're, more you're an or less. Man. Well, the thing with the entrepreneurs, um, I, my impression is that entrepreneurs are not the best at setting up routines. Um, so they make great, they make pe great people who can like start up and create new ideas. Who can quickly prototype and deliver some something like an actual product for example but they're not necessarily the best managers you know people who have uh, the experience to uh, uh, set up a routine to sort of have that discipline to continue to continually have everything structured i think on average the personalities of people who make good entrepreneurs versus good sort of long-term managers is slightly different so yeah, I tried to set routines, but I probably am not the best person at doing that. Uh, yeah, until now, until the lockdown, I had somewhat of a routine when it comes to gym. Now I'm trying to like build up an, another one uh, from home, but I'm sure others are much better than me at doing that. Right. So, so you're a chief technical officer at Iva Technologies, right? Iva. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how how does a day in your life right now in the lockdown look like? From waking uh, up to going to bed, if you do that. <laughs> right, yes. Um, 
pretty much this, luckily the same um, as it was before the lockdown. So as I mentioned, the, the rules are not super strict. Like if we have to come to the work, then it's, you know, it's okay. I mean, the, the risk factor personally for me, and I think for everyone who comes to the office is relatively low, like Luxembourg City, it's a pretty small city. So uh, commuting is not that big of a deal. So for example, I wake up at breakfast, then I take my bicycle, I cycle to work. Uh, it takes 10 minutes max. Uh, and then I'm in the office for the rest of the day until uh, maybe like 8, 9 p.m. And then I come back, uh, then I'm home. So I don't move around too much except for an occasional supermarket. Um, so yeah, and that's how it was before the lockdown. So in that sense, my routine hasn't changed too much when it comes to day-to-day -day work. But um, how many hours do you spend uh, every day working uh, on Ivan? Uh, probably um, on the weekdays, maybe 11 to 12. Uh, that's not counting lunch breaks, so with lunch breaks it would be less. Um, and then I usually come for at least a couple of hours in the weekends. Um, so yeah, like startup <laughs> routine. Yeah, startup. Are out. you enjoying it? Is it uh, is it what you wanted, or uh, is there a myth that got got broken? <laughs> uh i don't think i ever had a myth so i never got into this because i was excited to become an entrepreneur um i mean it, it's a cool idea of course and i did uh i was part of an entrepreneurship uh, society back at uh, my university there was like an entrepreneurship course that uh, we had to do as well um and that that was a lot of fun but I don't think I ever had this sort of holy grail of becoming an entrepreneur and having sort of this vision of how like amazing that lifestyle would be. Um, so I, it's, it's not even so much that I looked at it realistically and I was aware that, you know, it's not all fun and games and it's a lot of work and it's a high risk, fact, high risk factor. Although I think most people recognize that it's just more of the fact that it wasn't, yeah, that wasn't my end goal ever. Um, which led me to uh, being where I am. Uh, I ended up where I am through sort of circumstance, through um, mostly being in the right time, in the, in the right place at the right time uh, with my friend and co-founder who was working on something quite interesting and I was sort of following on the side doing my uh, final years at uni. Uh, it was a topic that I was interested in and it was related to music, it was related to technology and more specifically sort of AI. Uh, and sort of we naturally came together and, and gave it a try and yeah it was relatively successful since then uh, so going back to your sorry your original question of uh, uh, is this everything I expected in terms of like long hours and whatnot um, probably not but also I didn't come up with I didn't come in here with strong expectations so this is sort of I do enjoy it I do feel like I'm doing something meaningful for myself uh, so I think this this type of sacrifice uh, is worth it, and over time it becomes a routine. Like right now, it's it's normal to do what I'm doing. Um, if I had come from like a regular nine to five job, it might have been a bit strange at first. Yeah, and and how um, in your own words, actually, I really want to get to this what what is iva technologies what what do you what do you do and and am i getting the name right is it iva technologies or just iva do you call it 
just yeah, that. the company's Iva Technologies. We call like the entity, the the AI Iva. You can just say Iva. It, it's it doesn't matter. Like we even between ourselves, we uh, are not very consistent. Sometimes we say Iva. Sometimes people say Ava. So it's it's uh, not so important. But yeah, what we do is basically we are a tech company which develops, um, let's call it uh, a system based on artificial intelligence, so to speak, um, that is capable of composing music, um, original music uh, from scratch. And the purpose of that is to use this tool to help composers, to help us, to help anyone who's interacting with Iva to create original music for you know, soundtracks, for, uh, for, for movies, for video game soundtracks, or just personal music. It, it's a tool basically right now for uh, musicians and uh, people who enjoy making music all around in general. And, and what's, the, what's the sell here in terms of why do we need artificial intelligence to compose music? I, I thought people mm -hmm. were doing a pretty good job. I mean, I was doing a pretty bad job when I tried, but, but hey, there's probably people better at it than, than I am. Uh, for sure there are. So what's the sell in terms of artificial intelligence? Sure, yeah. So. Um, I'll start off with uh, the cell that um, is, is still a, a, a very valid selling point, and it's the one we started with, um, and now it's kind of sort of expanded, and there's a couple of other pointers. But if you imagine like the regular uh, process of creating a soundtrack for for a movie, um, if you're a musician or if you're a composer, and uh, some client comes up to you, let's say a director, and asks you to create a soundtrack for this movie. He's going to give you some brief. He's going to ask of you for some specific style in which he wants you to compose. Uh, and in general, he'll have some demands, some guidelines for what he wants uh, out of this project. And so the composer will start by trying to come up with original ideas, with some themes uh, for the soundtrack, uh, given the guidelines um, and constraints. Uh, once sort of these ideas uh, take form, uh, you might proceed to uh, arrange that to have sort of a longer you know, structure that uh, fits the particular um, scenes of the movie um, uh, or just generally sort of extend the themes on, on, on a long-term basis. Um, if the client wants this music to be orchestrated, for example, performed in the full orchestra, then that will be another part of the process. Usually uh, composers start with a small ensemble or a piano. Uh, and finally, that will be recorded and you know produced, obviously after some iterations and feedback from the from the client, uh, in order to deliver the final uh, product. So when we started, uh, what essentially Iva's purpose was was to help automate and and uh, smoothen the early part of this process. Mm -hmm. So the the initial creative part of coming up with new ideas and coming up with ideas that fit the requirements of the client. So generally speaking, no matter how great of a composer you are, composers often face writer's block. Um, they face the uncertainty of time. It's not obvious from the get-go how long it's going to take to come up with the right theme. Um, some um, some music can take you know a couple of days to come up with and then already record. Uh, some will take weeks or months even, and that might be because of, again, writer's block, or it might be because of uh, uh, the extra 
feedback from the director and then going back and forth until you meet the requirements. It's not always obvious what the director wants from the get-go because uh, music is subjective. And even if, when you try to describe what you want, I want like a happy theme that sounds a bit like this, it's open to misinterpretation. So what Iva aims to do is to speed up this process, being able to come up with new ideas pretty quickly once the system is trained and knows what it needs to do. And it also helps meet the requirements because it's able to uh, look at the requirements in the forms of examples of music and create something in a similar style if that's requested. So because of this difficulty of uh, uh, communication through description, actually like the standard practice often, uh, in the industry is for directors to send uh, temp tracks or temporary tracks, basically music that is meant to be uh, exemplary of what the director wants, but obviously can't use it in their movie for uh, copyright reasons or, or anything else because you know they want an original piece of music in a similar style. And usually that's enough for a composer to understand what they're going for, but they still have to walk the fine line of making something original that stands out, but also similar enough to the request. And this is basically where Iva comes in and helps in that process. Um, over time, as we develop this tool, uh, we've also added the capacity to orchestrate, to be able to generate for full ensembles uh, in, in different styles. Um, and by now, we have a product online uh, where, with which you can basically, anyone can log in, make an account, and start generating music in different styles, even in custom styles. Like you can. Let's say you want to make the next sort of Pirates of the Caribbean um, uh, soundtrack. You can um, uh, upload a similar style music and get something in return that is supposed to sound similar. That's a way for you to communicate your personalized uh, requirements to the system. Yeah, and I guess another thing to mention is early on, we were basically what we were doing is we were uh, acting as the composer or, or a production company uh, dealing directly with clients and you know, directors who would come to us and you know uh, in the same way they would come to any given composer and ask us to create uh, a soundtrack for their project and internally we would use these tools that we were developing in order to help uh, improve our, our, our process uh, and more recently over the past year uh, it's been just over a year now that we've released a product which is for directed at composers themselves and um, people like you as well, people who aren't professional composers, who aren't necessarily professional musicians, but who are interested in composing uh, in order to sort of deliver these tools to their hands and allow them to um, uh, learn from the process, to be able to create uh, new ideas uh, in styles that they may have never composed in before and that they otherwise wouldn't be able to come up with. That sounds yeah. awesome. So, so just to understand this, if if I wanted to create a soundtrack for this podcast, let's say, right, a very mm -hmm. short clip uh, that would play at the beginning, uh, I how would I use your tool, and what would it like? What would I need to input, and what will be the output, and how do we orchestrate it? How do we make it sound good? Mm -hmm. So uh, you could go like right now, uh, log in, make an account, and through your browser go to this to this platform where basically you'll be immediately you'll, you'll immediately be able to create a new track um, without giving any further inputs you can use some presets that we have which are basically some predefined styles so there may be like modern cinematic style there may be uh, sort of Chinese style there may be tango we've got a couple of um, 
general styles of music in which you could generate. Uh, if you know what you're going for, uh, then you could control some other parameters. So for example, uh, you want something that's um, uh, quite uh, vibrant and happy, you might select, let's say, the pop style in, in a major key, um, or maybe fast-paced. I want something, something... ACDC style kind of thing. Right, so you might select uh, the rock preset, uh, you can select the, um, thing, the, the heavy metal ensemble, so you have some distorted guitars, you can select fast pacing, and then just click create. You can create five, ten, one, and just your tracks will be created within a couple of minutes, and you can start listening to those results. Um, those results would have already been composed. Um, uh, they would have been orchestrated. In, in this case, it would be some sort of like rock ensemble. Um, and they would have also been recorded and produced. Like what you would hear at the output would be um, the equivalent of a composer uh, sitting down at his laptop or computer workstation and opening up their digital audio workstation. So these are like programs that uh, composers use to uh, compose but also produce the sound. And a composer might have libraries of samples for real or orchestral instruments or guitars and so on. And they can use that to basically record a, um, a piece of music without having to go to the studio themselves and have real musicians record it. Um, if done correctly, it's almost uh, indiscernible from real recordings. Um, so if you like what you hear, you can immediately start using it as your podcast soundtrack. If you think that you want to rework it, you can download the score, put it into your own digital audio workstation, use your own libraries of uh, uh, sound samples in order to reproduce it, or even just send the score to some musicians and record it in the studio. It, it's up to you how much more you can you want to improve the output that Ivy gives you, um, but you do have the uh, capacity to do so because we offer the users the ability to download uh, the final compositions and different representations so that you can actually interact with it. Uh, you can even interact with it directly through the platform by making some changes to the orchestrations if you want to make some small changes but use our sort of production um, uh, tools. So from the time I log in until I am able to pick a track that is already mm -hmm. orchestrated and already sounds like um, something I want to use, how, how long is that process? Well, if you, if you log in and you already know what you're going for, you just click in the parameters at a normal speed. I mean, that can take you like 30 seconds, let's say a minute if you want to get used to the UI. You click Create Track. Um, within a minute or so, the track will be created. You'll listen to it, and depending on the length you're going for, you'll listen to it for like 30 seconds, you'll listen to it for three minutes, and then you can make a decision, then you can immediately download it. Uh, obviously, you can spend much more time on this. You can, can create more than one track. You can like decide to download the uh, the score and work in it on your own in your own environment. But yeah, to be able to hear it, it'll take you a couple of minutes at most. That is absolutely nuts. Because how long would this process take um, if I were to go and find a composer, reach out to them, work with them, even if it's just somebody who is uh, you know a beginner or or a professional in in mm -hmm. your case. How long would that be? Like a couple um, months, right? Well, I, I would I would say if you just want to hear like a first draft, because essentially the first thing you'll hear coming from Ivo will be a first draft. 
Um, you might like it immediately, and that might be enough uh, for your needs, but you might want to make some changes. Um, if you were to approach a composer, it would really depend on the person, I guess, and their workflow, but they could probably come up with, with something in a couple of days, um, and you'll be able to hear a draft pretty quickly as well. Um, from then on, obviously, it's up to you whether you want to um, continue working on improving this and iterating over the results. So the full process might take about a month, yeah. um, sometimes less as well. So it really depends on the changes you want to make. Right. But it sounds like you've just completely shrank the, the, the full end-to-end -end process of composing music into seconds, really, from at least hours and days and months even. Well, it definitely speeds up the process of generating um, drafts, like initial sort of ideas uh, fully in terms of you write the music, you orchestrate it, you produce it, you can actually hear it. Um, but it is rarely the end result that you immediately want to use, unless you do have some sort of, you know, video that you don't really, you know, you don't want to have the next Hans Zimmer soundtrack attached to it, like something um that comes directly from iva is good enough for you sure then that might be enough uh i wouldn't say that you completely shrunk the whole sort of month-long journey that you might have with a composer when working on a project uh you might still uh want to as i said before continue uh, iterating on the output in order to get exactly what you want and yeah keep in mind that a, a lot of the users of this platform are composers themselves so there maybe would be the ones working with a, with a client such as director and they would use this tool in order to come up with this initial draft uh, that might have otherwise taken them days uh, or maybe a week or, or so um, but then they can continue sort of working uh, with a director uh, or any other type of client uh, to improve and iterate on this output as they see fit manually or also with the aid of IVA. That is so interesting because a couple of years ago, right, we, you and I were talking about the, the fear that some composers would probably have when mm -hmm. there's this artificial intelligence solution that is, is coming is going to replace them and is going to be able to write music that people enjoy, but there's no longer a need for composers. And actually, what Ava is, is a perfect example of how artificial intelligence AI works together with people. So it's human plus machine. And it's it's incredible how how empowering it can be and we see this application across right i think this is the this is really the best way to apply artificial intelligence because is artificial intelligence right now good enough to be completely standalone is the technology there do you think well i th it probably depends on the problem you're trying to solve if you're asking generally uh, I mean, there's probably some things that we can just automate away, which is just either manual labor or, or some other type of tasks, which frees up uh, potentially uh, time for people to focus on other things. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into the discussion of whether that actually takes away jobs and, and how that affects the economy. But in principle, there probably are tasks that uh, artificial intelligence would be ideal at tackling on its own without sort of collaboration with people. But of course, when it comes to creating music, um, creating art, creating other things, more and more complex tasks, which are very difficult to uh, qualify, evaluate, and just generally automate, it definitely um, helps being able to have a system 
that collaborates with people in order to achieve the final end result. And you're right. When we first started, um, we had this vision um, to create something that's useful for people that doesn't replace composers. There was naturally a fear from people like um, composers, for example, who uh, immediately had the um, opinion that what we were creating was not useful for them, that might be harmful, might take away their jobs. Uh, and at, at first, we didn't have this product, we didn't have this tool that was in the hands of other composers for them to see that this actually could benefit them. But we were seeing this ourselves because essentially we were taking on the role of the human composer uh, as, as a company and we were using these, this tool to help us deliver the final soundtracks. We, it wasn't just a system doing something on its own and, and working together with clients and we were just kind of in the background coding. Um, and then once we were able to release this product that anyone could log in and use, it became more and more evident to composers themselves that, hey, this isn't something that's going to take my job away. It's something that I can use the same way I could use synth when it was first developed in order to empower myself and, and help fuel my creativity. So more composers started coming around and some of our most um, uh, excited and dedicated users are our composers who use this tool for their own purposes. You mentioned the word creativity and that's exactly what I wanted to ask you on because that's the one thing that uh, you know we talk about is what 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 is different between us human beings and machines and right. Uh, so I wanted to ask you: Is Iva actually creative, or or how would you describe? I, I think you referred to, to 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 the to the machine as her, right? To, as a she. Yes, sure. Yes, uh, Iva. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's an acronym, artificial intelligent virtual artist, but. It was originally inspired from a female uh, character of a movie that you're familiar with. I think we watched it together, Ex Machina. But I think it was Ava. What a cool uh, spelled film, differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's there's a definitely sort of this persona that uh, came to be, and she is female. Um, I think my, my co-founder um, had this idea to begin with, even before I. I, I join him and another interesting idea is that you hear a lot of uh, famous uh, male composers there's not that many well-known um, uh, female composers for example in the classical era and, and so on uh, so it was it was also sort of a nice touch uh, to personify uh, the the AI system that we were building um, so is she creative yeah. then that's a very tricky question um, I would say so. I mean, if we're talking literally, she is creating new original um, results, music that you can, me and you can hear and appreciate. She's uh, creating something that doesn't exist. Now, is this like a creative process in the same way that humans are creative? That's a very tricky question because we don't really have a perfect definition for creativity uh, outside of any AI systems. Just what does it mean to be creative? Um, are you, is it just novelty factor? Are you just creating something that's uh, new, um, that doesn't exist before? Uh, is it somehow a function of uh, other people, a society? Does, does something 
needs to be recognized as interesting and valuable for it to be uh, creative. Um, it's hard to say. Um, but I would definitely say that Ava is creating something. It's creating something new. It's creating something familiar and familiar style. So it's appreciated by people. Uh, it's something that they can use and claim as, hey, this is something unique that I created with Ava. Uh, this is unlike anything else. It's similar, but it's it's new. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely creative in that sense. And we are working on generative models. So in AI, uh, when you have uh, uh, various systems based on machine learning or deep learning, you're often solving problems uh, that need to um, classify certain things uh, or to make certain decisions. Uh, but there is a family of models, generative models, uh, which are outputting um, something uh, in, in the data domain that they're working in and creating something new. So it could be creating new texts, uh, so writing stories. It could be creating new images, new art, uh, new visual art, uh, and it could be creating music. So it, it is definitely generating something as opposed to uh, a system that is trying to classify uh, different uh, categories of pictures, for example, classifying dogs or cats, or, or an AI system that's trying to make decisions, such as a self-driving car powered by an AI system that is making the decision as to whether to go left or right here in this situation, or playing chess or anything of that uh, sort. Right, and and is our generative models are are they part of deep learning or machine learning? Uh, because the way I understand AI is that you have this. Uh, overarching field of uh, uh, data science, right? And then within it, there's AI. And within AI, there's machine learning. And within machine learning, there's deep learning, right? So how do generative models fit within? And how do you dis where does Iva within this process sit? Uh, does she use all of those components? Oh, sure, yeah. So does I'll start with your um, categorization. Um, I would say AI, artificial intelligence, is a pretty vague term, and it wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a subset of data science. Um, right now, the most popular uh, systems and models that you hear about uh, and are labeled as AI most often fall into one of the two categories of machine learning and deep learning, which, yeah, could be seen as a subset of data science, that's accurate. But you can have artificially intelligent systems that not necessarily learn from data, uh, they use other methods for um, making uh, intelligent decisions. They're, uh, they're basically um, guided by some principles of, of action that uh, use sort of logic rather than uh, data to uh, decide on how to act in certain situations. So I, I would generalize AI to be a bit yeah, more vague, unfortunately. Um, but when it comes to machine learning and deep learning, yes, you could view it as sort of a, a, a subset of data science, I suppose. The, um, the clear difference there is that a regular program or regular system model needs a recipe for uh, completing a certain task. So let's say you're writing a program or, or, or some agent uh, to teach it how to bake a cake. So what you would do traditionally is have a clear recipe how to bake that cake. So you would have the ingredients, you would have the exact order and steps and instructions of how to combine those ingredients. And in the end, you will always predictably get 
the, the cake out of it. Um, but let's say that was a very complicated test that you couldn't write a recipe for it. So for example, writing music, like there's no single recipe that you could write in order to create uh, music altogether. Um, so instead, what you could program is a recipe of how to learn to bake a cake. And for example, you could uh, uh, write a recipe for an agent to observe your, I don't know, your granny that's cooking the cake. And it'll be observing her cooking the cake many, many times. And during that process, it tries to replicate that. Um, and over time, it'll learn how to cook uh, the cake, bake the cake uh, through example. Um, so that's what differentiates machine learning and deep learning systems from regular uh, systems where you explicitly have a set of rules uh, in order to achieve something. Instead, for machine learning systems, you have a set of rules as how to learn from data uh, in order to complete a certain task. Um, as you pointed out yourself, deep learning would be sort of a subset of machine learning. Essentially, it refers to um, most often to neural networks, which are a particular type of architecture um, uh, that uh, can learn from data, but can be layered uh, in many ways and has many millions of parameters. It's in a sort of very general sense uh, inspired by neural networks in the brain, which have millions upon millions of, of connections. And it's called deep because these days you have models with many different layers of, of neurons, so to speak, um, which can learn from much more data and potentially uh, uh, complete more uh, difficult tasks. Um, as to generative models, so the being generative really means that you are um, outputting something um, that is uh, not just some kind of um, uh, classification value or, or answer to a problem. So for example, you may be dealing with text. So you could have a system that is trying to translate text or, might be, or maybe classify the text. For example, sentiment analysis, you might have a sentence that is either positive or negative and the system can try to um, uh, classify the sentiment. Uh, that wouldn't be necessarily generative, uh, but you could have a system that generates new text from scratch after learning from data. So in both cases, you could have similar architectures. So you could have uh, machine learning uh, programs that aren't based on deep neural networks that are being generative. Uh, similarly, you could have uh, deep learning uh, models based on neural networks that are generating data. So it's not necessarily a, a subset of e either one of these. It's more uh, a type. Of model. In our case, we um, it will be hard to explain in a in in a couple of sentences exactly or categorize the type of model we have. Right now, we have sort of an ensemble of models that work together, and they uh, borrow from uh, different types of uh, fields, including machine learning, in order to be able to generate the outputs. It's funny that you use the um, the word ensemble here. Mm. It's quite a quite a fitting word here. But um, in order to understand Iva better and the kind of model that she uses, um, or you guys have taught her to use, I really want to understand the the end-to-end -end process of uh, how the algorithm works. 
if that is not uh, private and confidential. Um, how would you describe that? How did it all start? Do you uh, feed the machine some uh, tracks and then it uh, learns patterns in some sort, sort of way and produces um, outputs? And then how do you, it, it must be able to produce you know, millions of outputs, right? How do you teach it what is good and what is not good? Right, yes. So I, I guess I'll, it's better to start from the end of your question. So how do you teach it what is good and what is not good? That's actually one of the more difficult problems in, in this field, so evaluation of, of quality. Um, and the reason it's very difficult is because there's no objective metric for what good music really means. Um, it's the same probably for any creative field. So similar problems uh, occurred in the uh, uh, field of uh, image generation or art generation. There's no clear way to evaluate. Um, every, for every other problems, for example, um, self-driving cars, it may be a very difficult problem and it may be difficult to solve, but at the end of the day, you have a means to evaluate it because you know in advance what good and what poor decisions are at the end of the day. Did, did, did your car crash? Did it make the right, did it follow the rules? Um, uh, for example, if you have an AI system that's trying to play chess, like a pretty complex game, you know what it means to win. So you can evaluate the performance of your model at the end of the day. And uh, then hopefully be able to use that information in order to improve it. For music, it's not as straightforward because there isn't sort of an objective uh, uh, metric with which to evaluate the quality of music. So we have to use indirect metrics, metrics which we think correlate with quality. Um, one of those uh, could uh, has to do with similarity to music that we already know is good. Um, so, for example, if you have a collection of masterpieces that we, as a society, over time um, decided were masterpieces and we really appreciate them, um, if we can evaluate uh, the outputs uh, of a system uh, as, a, as a measure of similarity to those pieces, not necessarily note by note, not, not, not in the sense that they would be covers uh, of those pieces, but stylistically they're similar and have similar uh, qualities to them, then we could say that the system is learning to generate something that's you know useful and recognizable. Um, obviously, we can gather feedback from people who are like actual users to see what they like, what they don't like, and aggregate all that all of that together and make decisions based on that in order to incrementally improve the system. Um, that's also tricky to do because you cannot immediately plug that into an equation and uh, teach the model to take those uh, that type of feedback into account. But in our case, we have multiple approaches to this, uh, including uh, metrics that are based on similarity to some extent, but also trying to incorporate uh, music theory and, and things that we as humans already know about music in order to force the models to uh, generate uh, good outputs. Uh, so for example, we already know what it means to stay in, in a particular key um, in order to for something to sound consonant or pleasant. So uh, instead of letting the model learn that and then uh, evaluating uh, how well it stays in key, 
we can control it in a way that we sort of force it to stay in key when necessary. Um, so things like that and the way we've designed our system a lot, it gives us some more leverage and control uh, over what it generates over time. Uh, now going to the beginning of your question, which is how does that process actually happen altogether? Uh, so we start with a data set, which is basically collections of, of music, let's say a particular style. So as I mentioned earlier in the call, if you log in and you try to um, create music, the very first thing that you'll encounter is an option to choose which preset style you want to generate in. So each of those preset styles essentially points to uh, a version of the system that's been trained on a particular data set uh, of uh, music in that style. Uh, so essentially what IVA does is it analyzes that data, it breaks it down into different musical features that we know uh, are are important dimensions to music. So things like harmony, the rhythm of the music, the analyzing uh, the orchestration of uh, the music, understanding what instruments are used in what context. And then that information is uh, used to create uh, new outputs, new original uh, uh, combination through, through, through sampling uh, the model. And because music is a very rich uh, data uh, representation, there's millions upon billions of different combinations you can have of just individual notes and a melody that you never run into the problem of creating something that's identical to uh, whatever you're uh, learning from. And we, we, we go to great lengths to make sure that's the case when sort of developing these type of models. Have you ever had a track that is that is just too similar to something that already exists when you actually haven't fed it that sample? Luckily, there are relatively concrete um, uh, sort of metrics, legally speaking, for what it means to plagiarize. Uh, there have definitely been cases where music that was uh, generated reminded me or, or anyone, any other listener of a particular uh, other song, uh, but never to the extent where it's basically um, feels like a cover of that music by chance. The, the likelihood of that happening, all things considered, is very low. It it's, must be a tricky and in feel. Some, in some case, it's, in some sense, it is would be equivalent to some human composer on accident creating a new song that sounds quite similar to someone else's song. In fact, you probably have, you probably have heard of um, uh, sort of infamous uh, court cases of musicians or composers suing other composers who after like 30 years have discovered that, hey, these guys have had music that sounds really similar. One party must have plagiarized the other. But the truth of the matter, it's probably was a coincidence to, to to some extent. I mean, it must be right because when whenever there's a there's a new student trying to learn guitar, like I was one day, um, you learn four chords, and those four chords are almost universal. You can play all, almost mm -hmm. any song with just four chords, and the sequence of those chords um, will be repeated in so many different uh, tracks, right? So. 
Um, even if I were to use those four chords to create a new song that I composed, it would probably be very similar to something that is already out there, right? Because it's just a a chord in a sequence of four, right? Of course, you know, music gets mm -hmm. uh, exponentially more difficult the more you learn, but four chords is just about what I've been able to learn. So <laughs> that's that's what I'm able to talk about. But um, it's it must be a really tricky field, right? Um, this plagiarism and 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 IP. Um, well, it's not IP, but plagiarism in this case, right? So do you have a lawyer who is uh, consulting you on this and telling you what's uh, uh, this is uh, this is acceptable and this is not? We might get in trouble and uh, this is fine. Uh, not specifically for this, uh, for, for trying to discern what's plagiarism and what's not. Uh, we know in advance that the type of outputs that the system will produce are not going to be similar to existing works to the extent that it might actually cause us legal uh, trouble, like or would actually be considered as plagiarism. So for example, with the chords, um, you mentioned that everybody, like a lot of people can use the same chord progression, and that's the reason why you can't patent a chord progression. So you can have a million songs with the same chord progression, that's not enough to claim plagiarism, legally speaking. Um, so we don't have, uh, we don't really, see the need for having like a lawyer going through every single uh, final you know, composition in order to decide whether it's plagiarism or not. Uh, you have to also remember that a lot of the time there's further intervention coming from the human side. So whether that's a user or ourselves that might download the piece of music, they're probably going to make some changes, even if it's just production changes. But often they might change the notes here and there just to fit their purpose better. And that strays away even further from uh, the original material, whatever material uh, it may sound similar to. Um, generally speaking, we have, we're lucky to have experience in the music industry itself. So um, copyright law, you know, uh, production rights, recording rights, all those different uh, parts that come into play when talking about IP on, on the level of music as something that we're familiar with and are sort of very careful about in general. But to your point as well, this new area of having an AI system create music is is a new area, legally speaking. Like new laws might have to be written in order to account for potential scenarios that you you might you know think of. So for example, when we first started, we we managed to get Iva um recognized as a official composer in the society of composers here in luxembourg even though she's not a natural person and that is already legally gray area like some people might argue how is it possible to um, have a composer that's not a natural person um so it, it is a we immediate, immediately entered sort of a strange new area when it comes to what it means to uh, have legal rights over music, um, but it hasn't cost us any issues until now. Um, it is an, an an amazing product. It just sounds like such a uh, an interesting field to be in, and the number of issues that you've run into working on this, starting from uh, just learning about artificial intelligence, deep learning, and then having to learn about uh, you know. Uh, plagiarism and um, the legal aspect of uh, what what music production is. So it's an awesome place that you're in. But the one thing um, that I want to 
talk about is, 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 is going back to, you know, where we started this conversation is, is entrepreneurship, right? So you're, yeah. how old are you? Uh, 25. Right. And, and how big is the team at Iva working on, on her? Uh, we've been pretty stable over the past year. So that's, we're about uh, 10 people right now. Right. Yeah. And you're the chief technical officer, right? Yes. So, yeah, so you so have my a team? Role is, yeah, so my role is to basically manage the technical development uh, of our products. And we have a dedicated team of engineers and researchers. Uh, we are about uh, one, two, four, five people strong, if you include myself. And um, yeah, part of my job description is to manage this team and, and try to understand uh, what type of features we want to work on next uh, for like the next update, uh, what type of research we want to be carrying out, carrying out right now um, in order to try and, and, and secure an improvement for the future. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of hands-on development still to this day and probably will be for a while from my end because that's probably more where my strengths really lie, uh, being able to uh, come up with new ideas, execute them quickly, um, learn relatively quickly um, and uh, see how that goes from the point of view of a prototype, but at the same time having the most experience in the team, having the most access to you know, the, where the company is going on, so from an overview, um, I also have to take the role of managing the team and pointing them in the right directions and making sure um, everyone's working on, what, uh, on the roadmap that is most you know, effective for our future. Yeah, and I remember talking to you about your team, and the, and you mentioned to me, and this was maybe a couple of years ago, but you mentioned to me that uh, you have team members that are uh, older than you are, right, and a lot more experienced in a certain field than you are, right? But here you are, a 25-year-old managing a, a team, and uh, I just want to ask you, like, how how did the, how does that feel? Is it natural to you? Did it come naturally to you? Did you find yourself sometimes losing confidence in yourself and having to work on it? Yeah, I mean, for sure, like none of this is natural. Um, so logically, like if you think about it logically, the, you know, the holy grail of, of an entrepreneur or someone like me is to find people who are more experienced than me in order to be able to do the things that I'm not capable, at least at the moment, of doing. That's what makes a great team. Um, so uh, we didn't just happen to get people that are, older and more experienced as we were actively looking for them at all times, people who are you know, passionate in this field and, this, and, will, and share the vision that we have and trying to find as many people as possible uh, to share that vision and share this journey. Um, the way I, like how it personally affected me, absolutely uh, in the very beginning, if you forget even uh, experience level and, and whatnot, just having to sort of interview and talk to people and evaluate them um, as someone who isn't an expert in the field, uh, someone who's uh, clearly is only learning, is can be a bit uh, intimidating at first. Um, it's not very, it's difficult to be confident in, uh, straight away because you really don't know what you're doing. And uh, you know, sure, you you can read a bunch of blogs and 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 suggestions and guides of people who. 
uh, describe what an interview process sh should be like and what kind of things you should be looking out for. But at the end of the day, it's just personal experience that you don't yet have. So I was definitely, um, you know, nervous at times, uh, just trying to figure it out as I go along. I think over time, as with anything, once you get some practice, you start feeling more confident. Doesn't mean you're necessarily better at it. So, for example, I'll have an interview with someone. It doesn't mean that I'm asking the right questions or the best type of questions. It doesn't mean that I'm make I'm making the best use of my time and, and evaluating them in the best way. But I'll feel more relaxed and I'll feel more uh, comfortable because I simply went through that situation a couple of times. Uh, uh, when it comes to specifically. Uh, having to evaluate and manage people with greater experience. Um, I would say, yeah, personally me, I think it, that idea affected me more than it might have someone else. That's just my personality. I am a bit more wary of, uh, I, I'm, um, I would say that I am not confident in the sense that I always have in the back of my head that I might be wrong in something. And I always want to make sure that um, uh, I'm doing the right thing. So I question myself quite often. And obviously when talking to someone who's more experienced and having to evaluate them, that kind of can creep back into your mind. And uh, the, the, sense, the, the lack of confidence from that is something that can easily uh, come into play. Uh, I think some other people with certain types of personalities might have an easier time doing this. But what I did also notice luckily for me is once I'm in the uh, in the uh, comfort zone of my knowledge, so for example, I might not be an expert in the general field of AI and music, but I am an expert in the product that we're building and the problems that we're facing by now and, and the solutions that are viable. There may be some better options, better ways to solve a particular problems, but I'm pretty comfortable and knowledgeable of what we're building and what are the challenges. So when I'm talking, to uh, to someone who's more experienced uh, in once we're, once they're in the team, uh, it's quite easy to keep the conversation flowing and, and keep it uh, on track. Uh, and I feel like I can definitely you know hold my own because I recognize uh, the, the problems and I am more familiar with what we're building than that person, even though they might be more experienced in their particular field. So they may be able to come up with the best solutions at the end of the day, uh, but. Uh, I don't have a problem with trying to point them in, in, in the right direction. So um, it's my job to understand what problems are more or less important in, in some sense and trying to understand how someone else who is more of an expert can help us solve those problems. Uh, so by now I'm used to like working in this environment. It's the thoughts of like me being younger or less experienced is not something that enters my mind on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's quite nice. It sounds like a successful entrepreneur really needs to have a couple of different elements. And if I can broaden them up, like just, just by following what you just said, is one, you need to have a very clear vision for the product and an understanding of what the product does, right? And what needs it addresses and what problems it solves right and once you're able to really define those you're able to you know expand on the product itself but but the other thing that is more intangible than the product itself is really about self-awareness right and and questioning yourself and thinking mm. what am i good at what do i know what do i not know and how can i complement it and how can i build a team around me that can you know help me build that vision 
um, mm. and how can I bring them on board on, on that vision as well? So it's it's also self-awareness, right? So questioning mm. yourself, but also it, you need to be good with people. You need to be able to read people. You need to see if they're genuine about mm. passion in the field or in the product, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I'm sure some people might be great at reading people straight away. Um, I think no one's perfect. You will never be able to tell whether a person is a right fit for the team just by having a single interview or a couple of interviews. I mean, it's a standard practice uh, in, in any company than to you know to have some kind of trial period in which you try to work with a person to understand whether they're a good fit. But that's definitely something that was also also had to be learned and uh, and improved on improved on over time being able to make the best of the little amount of interaction you might have in the beginning either through an interview or even more importantly in a trial period to help you understand whether that person will be a good fit in the long term or not because you can go through the trial period having the person do their tasks and, and you know working on a particular project but it might not be as informative as you might think and certain other problems that were noticed before might surface later on which make work a working relationship more difficult so over time uh, uh, I've had to think about ways to um, set up uh, projects tasks over a trial period in order to try and understand as much as possible uh, related to the factors that may affect working relationship in the long term. So for example, is a person uh, able to communicate effectively? Um, so for example, if, if, I just, if we just have a person working on a three-month project independently, they may be an expert in that, but if they're just working that and then they report in the end and I get the results, it might sound great, but during that three-month period, I didn't have the opportunity to frequently communicate with them to understand whether there's uh, um, uh, the communication is is good, whether we can understand each other, whether we can um, uh, quickly adapt if something goes you know wrong or maybe some, uh, we run into difficulties. Yeah, another thing is the, you know trying to understand whether a person is a right fit in in, in, in a in a small startup company. There may be people who will thrive in a company where everything is organized but they might struggle in an environment where there's more uncertainty, where you know next month you might suddenly have new requests from new clients and you suddenly need to uh, change your objectives, uh, fine tune them and react to this uncertainty. There may be times where uh, there isn't too much work uh, to be done at one point, but suddenly a new big client comes in and you have to quickly deliver something and you need that extra flexibility. Uh, these are sort of the types of intangibles which are hard to um, evaluate from like a single interview or, or a CV um, and some of the things that uh, need to be, uh, you know, ideally would, would have to be um, made clear during a trial period, for example. And yeah, these are the things that I've personally had to learn uh, over time when having people join the team. So it sounds like you've designed specific uh, tasks to test whether people are a good fit, whether they're uh, capable in terms of their knowledge and uh, capability and, and work ethic, but also in terms of communication. So um, did, how do you go about designing those tasks? So for example, if you have a trial period with a person, uh, a, new, uh, a new developer that you're working with, what kind of project will you aim to set up and what kind of skills will you be testing? So communication, and yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah, so 
it it will really depend on the role and the, the, the person is trying to fill in. Like you, you, we can put labels as to, hey, we want this guy as like a DevOps engineer, or hey, we want this like researcher. But at the end of the day, um, they're filling more than just that role. Ideally, they're filling like a particular role in the company on the long term where they can help with uh, a set of uh, tasks or a type of task uh, that is a bit more specific to what we're doing rather than just a, that original label of, of DevOps engineer or, or researcher. Um, so if, until now, it's mostly been case by case basis. I think for more general skills like communication skills and being able to sort of be flexible and be able to react correctly to some uh, obstacles. These are things that um, I haven't necessarily formalized and written down in a war document, but the typical things that I'll do is try to make sure that we've got a project where it's, even if it's independent, um, there needs to be constant sort of a back and forth, a collaboration where um, the person will need more information from me or from some other team member in order to complete the the different uh, checkpoints in the uh, in the task, or perhaps it is a collaboration. In which case, I will be able to get a sense of uh, what it's like working with that person over like a, a three or six month period, for example. Uh, when it comes to reacting to sort of uh, having the flexibility that is necessary in a startup company, uh, it, it might have to do with uh, setting specific deadlines, which might be tight, or or setting deadlines on short notice and just trying to see how the person uh, reacts. And at the end of the day, there's also the intangibles of just observing how a person um, uh, thrives or works in this environment, how they interact with other people in the team um, and day to day, how they fit into the culture overall, basically. And there's not necessarily a set of tests that you can set for that, but just having the awareness of that and observing that uh, during that time is important. That's something that I've had to do more than I was initially doing, for example, when first starting to work with new people. Yeah, so, I mean, naturally the, the role changes and evolves into, uh, um, so you're probably are less hands-on today than you were, you know, a couple of years ago, right? So, um, to a small extent, surprisingly. So, um, we haven't grown to the extent where I am fully focused on managing people. I am very much involved and hands-on. And part of the reason is as we grow, we also take on more responsibilities as a company. So maybe we have more projects running in parallel. And maybe instead of one product, we suddenly are working on multiple products or or on multiple different features in parallel. And so uh, also putting my strengths uh, into use uh, is something that I think is, you know, smart and efficient to do and my strengths are to come up with new prototypes and to actually be hands-on with certain things. So I'm still very much involved in a lot of the uh, actual hands-on development in certain cases, uh, but obviously I also have to be much more sort of aware and, and spend more time on um, helping others, collaborating with others, managing others. I really like that, Rant, because you know it feels like it would be a, an easy thing to get lost in as you're as you're growing, you're you're starting to get more managerial and looking after mm. people, and you actually um, forget about what you're passionate about and what you're strong uh, in. 
And it feels like you've been able to maintain that and you're actually using your talent to uh, in, in the most effective way. So um, it's like, well done. It sounds, uh, uh, it's, um, it's quite a difficult thing, I imagine, to maintain. I mean, it may have come naturally, but it just feels like many people would fall into that trap. Or maybe I would. Well, I mean, uh, thanks. I, I'm aware of this and this is sort of like my theory and I try to keep it up. Now, whether I'm doing a good job at it or not, that's always the big unknown. That's the, the big unknown of whether you're making the right decisions is something that's always hovering and that's, you know, part of the stress of this job. So I might say and make it sound great like, here, this is my theory. This is how it should be. And this is why we're making the decision we're making. But whether those are ultimately correct decisions or the, the best decisions to make, it's not clear. So it's not obvious to me or you whether um, I'm, uh, you know, doing the best I can in the situation and making the right day-to-day -day decisions. Uh, you're right in terms of like falling into traps of being too managerial. Actually, it's um, more often than not, you can fall into the opposite trap where you're so used to being hands-on that you have other people who are suddenly joining the project that you end up micromanaging or you end up not delegating tasks well enough because you want the best results. And at every single point in time, up to the point where you've been working in it alone, you're the best person to do it more efficiently because you are the most knowledgeable. So from just like a, uh, on a local level, it would be more efficient if I completed this task, because right now I am more familiar with how to do this rather than someone who's newer and who hasn't like worked in that particular part of the uh, system. So I would be tempted to uh, do it myself in order to you know get those results faster, quicker, uh, rather than delegate it. But that's, that is a mistake, that's easy, a trap that's easy to fall into because then you end up not taking advantage of having like a, a greater team that can take up the uh, responsibilities from you on uh, on individual level and falling into the trap of micromanaging people where you want to control like every single sort of step uh, throughout the process which is just not efficient on a, on a sort of uh, on a higher level i think this entire discussion was so interesting and uh, we spoke, we, we started off by speaking about, well, a little bit about the quarantine, right? The times are such we need to, we need, we need to discuss that, right? Uh, but we spoke a lot about the technical aspect of algorithms, mm -hmm. Iva and what she does. And then we spoke about the managerial element of it. But the one thing I feel we didn't, you know, speak about is the beauty of music. And that's what I want to finish off this conversation with, uh, on. And I, you mentioned uh, through the conversation that there is actually not a no strict definition of what good music is, mm -hmm. right? It's a very subjective term. So I want to ask you, what is good music to you? What does it mean to you? And, and what, how, how has music generally impacted your life? Because I know you, you play a bunch of instruments mm -hmm. and you're pretty good at them. Well, <laughs> I would, I'm decent in some instruments. I mean, I'm by no means a professional musician. That's not my background. It's, it was always my hobby. Uh, but yeah, I was always interested in it again, probably due to my personality above all things, because it's sort of a creative outlet. I, I get sort of motivated to do things that have a novelty factor to it, a sort of uniqueness to it. Um, more so in some cases than sort of like an end result. So for example, I'm not creating music because I wanted to, I don't know, become a hit song or anything like that. Uh, I'm making music that I might not show anyone or I might forget later on, but I still enjoy the process of it because I feel like I'm creating something novel. Um, when it comes to just science, technology, like that comes hand in hand, like 
one of the biggest reasons of my, I guess, attraction to the sciences is because it is a creative endeavor. So I, I studied engineering and, you know, engineering is more about make like creating new things, solving problems with like novel solutions. That, that part is exciting. So putting that together with the music is just sort of a perfect combination from the point of view of my personality and what kind of motivates me when it comes to, yeah, creativity. As for the quality of like what makes good music, um, it's really difficult to answer uh, with one straight, like with, with a single sort of summary. Uh, I think it's deeply personal overall. Like people have preferences that they develop and tastes that they develop, which their personal tastes, but also they most likely come from, you know, their background, from their cultural background. So if, if I had grown up in a different country, listening to different types of music and uh, playing different types of music with my friends, I would have likely developed different musical tastes. At least that's my intuition. Um, and so what makes good music good is, uh, is a matter of does it, does it capture my curiosity? Does it capture my attention? Does it invoke the types of emotion that uh, it can invoke and sort of you know uh, capture that uh, moment? Do I want to keep coming back and listening to it? Does it inspire me to do other things? Does it make me feel I don't know sad um, or happy? Um, and different types of music can invoke the same types of emotion in different people. So I might not respond to uh, emotionally in the same way listening to one genre of music because I'm just not familiar with it so much as another person would be who grew up listening to that type of music. So I do think the quality of music is overall quite subjective and culturally driven as well. Um, at the same time, being exposed so much to the you know practical side of music composition, to the technical side, there's a lot of patterns that you can find which sort of have uh, good music has in common. So being able to capture someone's attention, you need something interesting. Like in pop music, people talk about the hook. Um, you know, you might have, uh, uh, there's a lot of theory, classic mu music theory that talks about the type of chord progressions you might have in order to have certain types of, you know, effects. These are things that people tend to react to. And these are guidelines as to what might make a piece of music interesting and, and um, um, pleasant to the ear rather than bland. But these are all just guidelines. They aren't the final answer as to what makes the music good. Uh, yeah, I don't know how well that answers your question. I want to dive a little bit deeper in that and ask you and, and your personal take on this. And it's probably a very bad question because it, I'm not sure what the answer will be. But I personally don't like these type of questions, but you'll get it now. So what songs or artists through you throughout your life have been the most uh, sort of shaping and impactful and that you've enjoyed the most and you always come back to so I just want to get to know that element a little bit right um, I'll be honest I don't have like a huge repertoire of, of uh, you know a music catalog that I come back to and I know I'm not gonna be throwing names of like uh, here's like a, a legend from jazz or a legend from rock um, I when so it's this is the weird thing when I grew up um, even when I started enjoying playing music you know playing guitar uh, learning how to play it with my teachers and you know jamming with friends I wasn't really like a big listener in music like listening to music is not something that it was like a big tradition in my family like uh, my parents didn't really like 
you know, listen to music except except for in the car. Actually, my interest in certain uh, types of uh, you know uh, Latin music, like uh, bossa nova and maybe like Portuguese music, possibly came from just having that one CD in the car. Uh, out of like the total of three CDs, like I don't even know why it was there and why my parents, how, how my parents came across it. Um, uh, have also like uh, Russian music and Greek music is also always something that played in the background, but I never from a young age sort of uh, um, uh, got particularly interested in any one artist that I would listen to constantly through, through up to like high school. And by that time, I'll, at the same time though, I was very interested in just learning guitar and making my own things like playing playing my own music like um 90% of me playing music even until today uh even though right now I might not have as much time to, to play the guitar as I w would want to would be just me rehearsing or playing my own little tunes rather than playing covers of of, of uh, existing music um during high school I did become uh, uh more uh, interested in particular artists, so there was like I had a big phase of uh, listening to some progressive metal and, and uh, artists of this day, like uh, like Tool, that uh, or or uh, listening to like Radiohead, some some classical uh, rock. Um, uh, when towards the end of my high school year, I got into of electronic music. Uh, at some point, electronic music that was a little bit more experimental and trying to mix different. Um, uh, folk or world music styles into it. So again, going back to those Latin roots and then mixing some of uh, uh, like South American uh, folk music with electronic, just like new uh, new genres that were sort of a discovery to me. Um, yeah, so I've been listening to a lot of stuff over the years. I wouldn't say that I have like really strong influences that sort of motivated me to pursue this you know, this field and this uh, interest in, in what I'm doing right now. Yeah. All right. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation because I learned so much about so much, right? Um, so I just want to say thank you, Dennis, for oh, taking the time out of your day because I know you're, it's, you, you made it very clear how busy you are throughout this conversation. And I knew that even beforehand. So thank you so much for taking okay. this time. Uh, really, really had a good, uh, good fun. Same, yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more of your podcasts once that uh, becomes available, and yeah, seeing how this goes. This, this was fun. Hey there, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, whether positive or negative, it is all constructive to me. So please leave it either in the comments or drop me a message. I would love to hear what you think. But for now, look after yourselves and take care.